welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode is on rapid initiation of ART, featuring Dr. Jason Halperin from Crescent Care in New Orleans, Louisiana, and Dr. Jürgen Rockstrow from University Hospital Bonn in Bonn, Germany. They'll discuss important considerations in the rapid initiation of ART, including guideline recommendations and data supporting recommended ART regimen options for rapid initiation, as well as emerging data for the two-drug regimen, dolutegravir and lamivudine, for rapid start. Following their dialogue, the faculty will field questions from healthcare professionals. This episode is taken from our series on key decisions in HIV care. You can follow along with the slides, which are available in the show notes. Let's get started and listen in to Drs. Halperin and Rockstraw. Great. Hello, everyone. So what we're going to do today is talk about rapid initiation of ART, start with the importance of rapid ART, talk about the guideline recommendations, data support current recommendations, some of the emerging data, and discuss some important considerations. We hope this will be very useful for your clinical practice. So obviously, one of the big drivers of rapid ART initiation is by improving the cascade of care, in particular, linkage to care. And what I thought would be important to share is that obviously, the situation of linkage to care may be very different throughout various regions in the world. And I've taken this slide from the ECDC, the surveillance uh, for HIV and other infectious diseases in Europe, to show you how the 9090 targets are reached by 2020 in various countries from this region. Now remember, the 9090 targets are having 90% diagnosed, 90% of those linked to care, and 90% uh, of those receiving antiviral therapy being undetectable. And what you can see is that indeed, if the percentage of all people with HIV who are diagnosed who are on treatment varies quite considerably throughout this region, with a lot of countries already reaching this first 90, which now is obviously been uplifted to 95%. But you can also see that particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, we do have some issues in some of the countries only are around 40 to 50%. Now, if you take a particular look at Germany, where I practice medicine, you can see that indeed our biggest difficulty is in the first 90, because we only have 88% of people diagnosed who have HIV, and we're really trying very hard to improve that, but that proves to be sort of a little difficult. But of those who are diagnosed, you can see that 96% are on ART, and of those, 96% are biologically suppressed. So that is not really a big issue. So for us, the driver for rapid ART initiation is probably less through improving the continuum of care, because that works very well in our country, but it's really more about people who present or are diagnosed late, and then obviously need immediate antiviral therapy. So let me hand over to Jason to explore the situation in the U.S. Well, thank you, Jürgen. What an honor to be on here with you and talking to everyone and how cool to hear the German experience. And now you could see the U.S. experience, which is we need to do a little work. Uh, so you could see that we are not meeting our 90-90-90 goals in any of the cascade, something that we must uh, commit to. You could see here that in terms of diagnosis, close. We have a good percentage that are being diagnosed. We need to do better. We know it's a USPTF recommendation for 13 to 65 for everyone to be tested at least once for HIV. But as you go down the cascade, you could see that the retention and care is only at 50% and virologic suppression is at 56%. 
And I want to note here that it's really increasing the virologic suppression that will lower the incidence of HIV. This is the idea of getting to zero. We have the tools to end the HIV epidemic. And we know that if we can have everyone living with HIV achieve viral suppression, we can get there. So that is one of the reasons I was so committed to a rapid ART model. And that is because in my clinic in New Orleans at Crescent Care, we're a federally qualified health center. We do a lot of in the community testing. We go to bars, we go to clubs. And what we noticed is when we would test for HIV, we would have people come for an appointment, maybe to get their labs done, maybe to see a case manager, but 15% would not make it to the provider visit. That was quite concerning. So we followed quite early San Francisco in December 2016. And here's the data from, from our clinic. And I've set this up into two cohorts. One, the Crescent Care Start Initiative, CCSIRs, people newly diagnosed within the last 72 hours, often same day. We see them, we start them on ART that day. The second cohort happened, it was actually patient-driven. One of my patients said, you know, I think I know how I contracted the virus. My boyfriend's been living with HIV. He really doesn't believe in our medical system. Can you talk to him? He should be on ART as well. So we met, he's been living with HIV for about five years. So I talked to him, we started ART that day, and he made up our first cohort of what we said are EIS patients. To the patient, no difference. We see patients immediately, start them on ART, but I did think it was important to separate the patients into two different cohorts. And just like Jurgen said, this is an intervention for linkage. You could see link to care, same day ART, and I'm most proud of achieving viral suppression. 99% of our newly diagnosed patients, 94% of those that were a bit later to care. To me, this is the importance of a rapid ART program. Now, everyone asks me about retention and care and viral suppression. And, and here I could show you, we have very good numbers in terms of retained in care. Um, and then HIV viral suppression was actually at a median time of a year and a half. 90% for our brand new diagnosed patients. But this is different. When we start talking about retention, we need to have as good quality interventions uh, as we do for linkage uh, for retention. And that's actually harder. So we have to have conversations about what are the best practices, keeping people engaged one year into care, two years into care, three years into care. And you could also see in my two different cohorts, there is a difference in those brand new diagnosis to those later linked to care. So this is important to recognize, but in terms of the linkage side, it's really doing the job that I hoped this intervention would do. I also wanted to take a moment to recognize the U equals U movement, incredibly powerful, undetectable equals untransmittable. That means that if a patient has an undetectable viral load, they cannot transmit HIV. This is scientific fact. We have four incredible studies supporting this, greater than 100,000 condomless sex acts demonstrating no transmission of the virus. Why do I bring this up? Because when I first meet a patient, I can talk to them about how starting ART, they're going to live a full life, um, that we are going to ensure that being on ART allows them not to have to struggle with what we know can be a struggle for people living with HIV, opportunistic infections down the line, cardiovascular diseases, et cetera. Starting them on ART immediately is best for their health. 
But when I explain to a brand new diagnosed patient that once undetectable, they cannot transmit the virus, they sit up in their chair. It's like a weight has been lifted off their shoulders. It is the biggest concern that I hear from my newly diagnosed patients that they could transmit the virus. So rapid ART is not only about starting ART same day, it's also about getting a provider in front of a patient and having that conversation and allowing that relationship to start on the immediately after diagnosis. Also, rapid ART is an intervention that upholds equity. You can see here on the left side, this is pretty concerning data from 2012 to 2018, lower rates of timely ART in black versus white patients, and it's worse in the South versus the West. We know this is due to biases, preconceived notions and biases within our health system. It's also due to embedded racism within our health system. So we need to uproot that. And we've done a really good job in the United States between 2016 and 18, where we're now seeing no differences in rates of timely ART. I can't say that rapid ART is the reason for this, but I can say that rapid ART helps continue uh, this progress. Because if you start everyone same day, and if you start everyone on a first line agent, then you won't see some of the inequities we've seen in the past. I always say at my clinic, any intervention should uphold equity as a commitment to starting a new intervention. And we should ask ourselves, does an intervention uphold equity when we are implementing it within our clinical system? And I'm really excited to be proud of, of rapid ART in doing so. So what are the recommendations for rapid ART? Well, DHHS they recommend initiating ART immediately or as soon as possible. And I like that they also note increasing the uptake of ART and linkage to care, decreasing the time to viral suppression, and improving the rate of viral suppression. So again, all in that linkage side, long-term and retention, we need to have best practices there. ISUSA, start ART as soon as possible. If a patient is ready, I'm always asked, how do you know that someone is ready for ART same day? It's, it's simple. Ask the patient. If a patient says, yes, I'm interested in starting ART today, well, it's pretty much a go. There's very, very few reasons I could think of that you would not. The European AIDS Clinical Society says whether rapid, possibly uh, same day ART is proposed depends on the setting and medical circumstances. So if you can do it, do it. And then the World Health Organization says it as clearly as possible. Rapid ART should be offered to all people living with HIV. What are the recommendations? Well, DHHS recommends a second generation integrase inhibitor, Bictegravir FTC TAF, co-formulated, or Dalyotegravir with either TAF, TDF, 3TC, or FTC. Also, a protease inhibitor can be used, boosted Darunavir with Ritonavir or Cobacistat, plus TAF, TDF, 3TC, or FTC. Why do they say this? Well, we know that the second-generation integrase inhibitors, we'll show you some data later, can overcome um, our transmitted resistance or concern for transmitted resistance. What is not recommended? And in RTIs, because of that concern for transmitted resistance. So please remember, NNRTIs would not be recommended. DTG 3TC, we're going to go over some data for that, but that is not yet recommended in the guidelines. We also don't recommend a back of year because you need that HLA B5701 up front. And what's not noted on this slide, but I think is very important, is in my clinic, 10% of patients 
are diagnosed with hepatitis B along with HIV. So treating empirically for hepatitis B is well as important in my clinical setting. We could talk more, Jurgen, a little uh, with the Q&A possibly with some of the newer agents. And then the uh, European AIDS Clinical Society follows suit with some of the same recommendations. Jurgen, back to you for the data to support. So here comes the data Jason is talking about which sort of influenced the decision of the guideline makers to choose certain antivirals over others uh, to be used in rapid uh, ART initiation. So let's start with the first study. This is the Diamond study. So this study specifically looked at the rapid initiation of COBE boosted darunavir FTC TAP as a fixed dose combination. It's an open label single arm study. So this is not, there's no control other arm in this study, and was really trying to see how is the efficacy and safety of this single top regimen for rapid uh, ART start. So patients who were above 18 with HIV infection in the last two weeks, no prior ART, and importantly, no opportunistic infection, no AIDS-defining conditions. So obviously, we don't have patients in here which really present very, very late, uh, were entered into this study, and the primary endpoint was the virologic response at week 48. Now, if you look at the overall outcome and the primary endpoint, you can see that the amount of patients, particularly the observed group who achieved undetectability, less than 50 copies was really, really high, 96%, 100% were below 200 copies per ml. And I think Jason very nicely stressed the importance of the U equals U message. And I think it's important to say that in the partner study, even in people who had a viral load above 50, but below 200, no one had a transmission occur. And so this is, the, I think, the true marker for U equals U. And obviously, with this regimen, this can be achieved in everyone. And I think I couldn't agree more full-heartedly with Jason about the importance of talking to the patient and explaining the U equals U concept, because that's where patients really, a lot of them get the motivation to stick to take their therapy, because no one really wants to infect somebody else. So that's a big motivation point throughout Therapy, particularly what I find is in, in very young individuals who are infected uh, as children and when they get into puberty and they get a little challenged by life and things which happen then, uh, that is a big motivation to stick to therapy. So in this trial, you can see that none of the individuals met criteria for protocol-defined biological failure or lack of efficacy, uh, and there was no resistance development, which I think is great. Remember that we noted that some regimens may work better than others for rapid ART initiation. We talked about the potential risk of transmitted resistance, and indeed in this trial, 11 individuals had a K103M, which is the signal mutation for efavirenz. There was also one patient with an M184V. This did not impact the results, but I think it's important to note that in a relative recent group of patients who started rapid ART, that there was quite a number of individuals with baseline transmitted resistance detectable upon genotypic resistance testing. If you look at the uh, patients by baseline viral load, we all know that high viral loads and low CD4 counts are a little bit more difficult to control and may take a little bit longer. But you can see that in the observed uh, response, that was the same. Obviously, there's always a difference in the intent to treat because you have a small patient number overall, 131. There were some patients uh, who left the study, withdrew consent, and so forth. There were a lot of administrative reasons. Only one patient discontinued because of adverse event. Another interesting study is a study uh, of rapid start with Bictegavir FTC-TAF. Now, this is in a very special subpopulation of individuals, namely those who present with primary HA infection. So they just got infected. Some don't even have antibodies yet. 
And uh, these were, though, obviously a low number of individuals, 11. And this is an interesting quote for one particular reason, because these patients on average present with a much higher viral load. And remember that we believe that in models, for example, we believe that a third of patients who get infected get infected by people who are undergoing acute seroconversion, because that's where you have the highest viral load. That's the viral set point. Uh, and so we believe that this high viral loads during seroconversion may contribute to further transmission. So obviously, fast treatment and control and preventing transmission is one of the desirable effects of early intervention during primary HIV infection. And you can see indeed that the median HIV RNA was pretty high with 5.5 log and eight of the 11 individuals had a viral load clearly way above 100,000 copies. So I thought that was quite uh, interesting. And the overall response rates uh, were very good uh, with uh, all patients responding quickly and achieving uh, undetectability over time. And, and I think that is very reassuring in that particular uh, setting. And then finally, just for completeness, let me add that there's also an ongoing prospective pilot study of big f taf uh, again, in same-day treatment, uh, which is currently uh, uh, ongoing. And so we'll see results of that in the near future. And I think that's important. So we get a little bit more information also on integrase inhibitor-based regimens uh, for rapid ART initiation. And with that, I think we'll have to deal a little bit more with baseline resistance issues. So Jason, I think is going to walk us through the data around baseline resistance. Great. Thank you, Jurgen. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I'm going to start with just a little story from, from my clinic. When I started Rapid Start, most of my providers, their biggest concern was initiating ART pre-genotype. So that, that was by far the biggest concern. So I'm excited to kind of dive into some of the baseline resistance data. But for my clinic, what I did is I looked at the last two years and I presented what were the transmitted resistance in the last two years. And we had about 10%, which was NNRTI mutations, just like Jurgen said in the diamond tri trial, K103N being the most common, you know, which we know. Uh, you know, this was in 16, so we might see some differences uh, in the next few years, but a favorance um, leading to K103N. But we did have about 4 to 5% M184V mutation. So that was some of the biggest concern uh, my providers had. So let's hope uh, that I could help relinquish any concern about our rapid ART regimens in the face of an M184V mutation. But before that, what do the guidelines say? I mean, I think we already went over this, the second generation INSTE inhibitors, you know, in the, in the naive trials, very rare to know uh, development of, of mutation. Actually, in the trials that have not been, there are very rare case studies that have been uh, New England Journal of Medicine. That gets you in a publication if you see a naive patient develop resistance to dilutegravir or bictegravir. So it is that rare. Uh, I always tell my fellows, you know, look for it. Because you can get a publication for sure. It is that rare. You know, the DHHS guidelines, um, they only recommend INSTE resistance tests or integrase resistance testing if you're concerned. So if a patient says, hey, I have a current partner. I know that they are on a very complex regimen because they have a lot of resistance. We'll for sure check a integrase uh, testing. But otherwise, it is not recommended. The IS guidelines recommend against testing overall for transmitted integrase resistance. Don't forget, this is in naive patients. For experienced patients, um, any experience with integrase inhibitors you would test. And then darunavir is recommended because of that high barrier to resistance that we know darunavir provides, even with the intermittent adherence. This is a really important study that Acosta presented, and this is looking at the rare 
transmitted resistance that can be seen with integrase inhibitors. And my fellows at Tulane always ask me this question of the T97A because it's the most common integrase, uh, transmitted integrase resistance mutation in naive patients. So let's look at the data here. These are very small numbers. You have to take that into consideration, but you could see any integrase resistance, seven out of seven achieve viral suppression. So 100% with Bictegravir, FTC, TAF, and then six out of six with Dalutegravir, FTC, TAF. And when they look then specifically at the T97A mutation, you could see all uh, achieve viral suppression. So we know that T97A, one to 5% of folks will have a T97A. It impacts, if you look at Stanford database, it does have a lower susceptibility impact for Elvitegravir and Raltegravir. So it can impact those first-generation integrase inhibitors. One of the reasons we don't recommend using them in a rapid model, but for Dalutegravir, Bictegravir, T97A has been shown to not have any impact on the effectiveness of the regimen. So really could feel comfortable um, in the face of a T97A. Let's now look at, at the M184V, which to me is the most important and, and the question I uh, get most commonly. And these are two studies, the Donning, a really nice international study, Nadia study looking specifically in sub-Saharan Africa. What I like about these studies is this is not naive patients. These are all ART experienced patients. They're folks that fail the first-line regimen, and they're viremic. So I feel like this is a higher bar. Um, we could start talking about rapid re-entry um, that Jurgen kind of started uh, talking about of starting patients immediately after they've been off ARTs for some time, because this data helps with that as well. But for a naive patient, you could see in dawning, in patients with a baseline M184V, 85% achieving viral suppression. And really shocking to me with a K65R plus tenofovir, so not using AZT, but tenofovir, 86%. It is incredibly rare. I, we are yet to see a transmitted K65R in my clinic. That doesn't mean it can't happen. But don't forget, you're still getting a genotype in the rapid model. You're just going to get the results two to three weeks later. So you can pivot in the unbelievably rare circumstance. You have a K65R, but you could see Really good efficacy uh, in this study with using dalutegravir plus two NRTIs. In the Nadia study, which compared dalutegravir to darunavir, boosted with ritonavir plus two, NNRT, two NRTIs in the setting of a first-line failure, 94% achieved viral suppression with an baseline M184V, 92% with zidovudine. We're not going to use that uh, for a rapid model. But in, again, in patients with a K65R, 94% with tenofovir. So with an M184V, we have really good data to show that your second generation integrase inhibitors plus two NRTIs, you will achieve viral suppression in an adherent patient. And with a K65R, I think that those two to three weeks are fine, and then you might want to broaden therapy, but that is incredibly rare. These two studies should give you lots of reassurance in the face of an M184V. Here's a nice study looking now at Bictegavir. This is Bic FTC TAF, and I want to point out these are in suppressed patients. So this is a 
um, study where patients were already virologically suppressed, but they had baseline mutations um, or they were picked up um, and with uh, the DNA sequencing and they looked to see, did they remain suppressed? And you could see in the pooled Bictegravir FTC TAF with a baseline data, 99% achieving viral suppression. And then with an M184V, it's at 98%. So, you know, these aren't viremic patients. That's why I like looking at the Nadia study and the Donning study even a bit more. But this should give you um, a good bit of reassurance of using Bictegravir FTC TAF in the setting of an M184V. There is a current trial with uh, an M184V mutation in a viremic patient. So more data to come, but many clinical specialists feel very comfortable and the guidelines do endorse using Bictegravir FTC-TAF for rapid initiation of ART. Uh, I think I get to hand it back to you, Jurgen, for some emerging data. Yeah, thank you, Jason. That was really great. You already mentioned that we're going to share some data on 3TC Dolotegavir, and you also, also highlighted that this particular combination of the guidelines that does not get the same kind of push or recommendation yet. And that was because there was hardly any data available. But now at some of the recent conferences, uh, particularly at the IS conference, we saw uh, results of the STAT study. So this is a rapid test and treat with adult integrator 3TC in adults with newly diagnosed HIV. Now, we're all very familiar with the fact that 3TC dolotegavir as a 2DR regimen has demonstrated long-term efficacy and was non-inferior to triple therapy with dolotegavir FTC-TDFS first-line uh, ART in Gemini study. And that has been shown over long follow-ups. And also, I think, which is very important, no resistance development uh, except one single case. Uh, up to week 144. So that, that's a very safe, efficacious regimen, but obviously there's some concerns. And I think here the question of resistance, what if I do have an M184V uh, and that's detected uh, and I have to switch at a certain time point, what about hepatitis B? So it does raise some questions, uh, but I think it was great that this has been done because otherwise we're never going to be able to answer it. Uh, this, again, was a group of people with an HIV infection the last two weeks, no previous antiviral therapy, 131 uh, were included. And if you look at the overall outcome, again, you see really fantastic results. If you look at the observed data, you can see 97% of patients on any ART regimen or on dolotegravir 3TC responded. So why are there some who went on other regimens? Well, obviously, when the results came back, and I think what I didn't say is that there was at day four, there was sort of a safety look at the safety data from the uh, lab values, and then there was also a look at the um, uh, resistance uh, and hepatitis B results later. And what you can see here is that there indeed were quite a number of individuals who had hepatitis B and then were subsequently switched to a TAF-containing uh, regimen to have also dual anti-HPV activity. And then you can also see that there were some uh, individuals with an M184B. So indeed, uh, there are patients which need to be switched, but uh, it means you can start with dual tegra 3TC, but there is a remaining group of patients where you switch, and that explains then why in the uh, snapshot or ITT analysis, you see a larger proportion of patients uh, who were then sort of not in, in the less than 50 copies uh, range. So I think that sort of may limit some of the issues, and I think we have some considerations we take from this. So if we compare three drug to two drug regimens, then there is the hepatitis B issue. Uh, the question, though, is if you have some days on Sol 3TC, which is also anti-HPV active regimen, does that really matter? Uh, there's obviously also a question of high viral loads, which was also, though, uh, present in this trial. Uh, then the discussion around the M184V, uh, and then also a discussion of recent infection. And maybe we'll come to that a little bit 
along the questions you give us in the chat. So let me just try to summarize some of the key take-home points before we move to the questions which are already appearing here in, 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 in the chat room. So clearly rapid ART is most beneficial where the cascade of HIV care is not at goal. So that's really a way to improve linkage to care and finally, ultimately, achieve a higher proportion of people being suppressed. And that's important for reducing community transmission and important for upholding equity. And I think very nicely was that pointed out by Jason, how that works in this clinic. Guidelines agree that ART should be initiated as soon as possible when indicated. Uh, clearly, at this point, ART regimens with high barriers to resistance are preferred uh, for rapid initiation. Big FTC TAF, boosted darunavir with FTC or 3TC, TAF or TDF, or dilatagavir FTC, 3TC with TAF or TDF are all great options. There is data to support the use of these regimens, even with common baseline resistance mutations, which we have seen from various trials. Uh, and there is now preliminary data for the use of filtegravir 3TC for rapid initiation with those some patients switching early on because of underlying baseline uh, chronic hepatitis B or uh, resistance mutations. So with that, I'll, I'll hand over uh, to Jason and let's see what we have for questions. Yeah, great. Uh, Jürgen, thank you so much. I think this was a, a really nice discussion and some questions are already coming in. Marcio asked a, a question that's really important because we get this in the clinic. She asked, regarding U equals U, how do we handle if a patient asks, doctor, I might fail my regimen before I come back for my next appointment, even if I have good adherence? I worry about the risk of transmission. So she's asking, how do we handle that in the clinic? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question, uh, although not that easy to answer. So I, I would say that one of the advantages of modern antiviral therapy is that the risk for biological failure has really become very low. Uh, and if you remain adherent, that probably becomes non-existent. So it's really more a question of if you say up front, I cannot take tablets regularly and probably it's going to be at least uh, you know every third day or whatever then probably there is an issue and and that's something you need to take into account personally my feeling always is that particularly the patients who are not adherent if, if i talk about them uh you know but their risk for infecting somebody else that is for me the biggest motivation point to increase adherence i really have yeah. to say i mean people who are like i don't care for myself but if you say well care about your partner you love the person you're with right so do you want to infect that person they say oh no i really don't want that and that has been such a driver that that's why i think you equals use has so much impact because it really changes the perspective of people living together and so i, I think in clinical practice this is not really too much of an issue at least in in, in the german setting yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, you know, this is the amazing thing about our regiments, how safe they are, how effective they are. It is really rare for us to see a naive patient who is adherent come back and, and have breakthrough viremia. It happens, but it's very, very rare. The, the yes. other nice thing is, is in the partner study, you know, they even had a few folks that did have this and they had viral loads that didn't cross a thousand. They were less than a thousand. And still there was no transmissions in that three month follow-up. So not lots of data for that, but you know, I, I do think that gives some reassurance. Yeah. Just uh, recently we finished a, a paper of a student here, a medical student who looked at the amount of people who blip. So have a viral load above 50, but below 200, that was like almost 25% over a course of two to three years. Uh, but that's not the, at risk of transmission group. Yeah. And if you look at other patients, 
mostly patients who fail for adherence reasons, they don't come up with a very high viral load, which obviously then also additionally protects. So I think that's an important point Jason made there that it's really the, the low level of arena, which probably doesn't account really much for a risk factor there as well. And only if you really don't take your medicine altogether, that's where it becomes, I think, dangerous, like treatment interruption, for example. There's another question. So let me ask you, Jason, uh, Nic Nicola asks, can you give us some ideas of the numbers of patients in Nadia who had K65R and received TDF, please? Yeah, so I actually was trying to look this up uh, because I don't have the exact number. Uh, I don't know if you do, Jurgen, but I do remember from uh, when it was presented at Croy, it was small numbers um, that were on the TDF arm that, that were uh, on dalutegravir, but those numbers were still, you know, very impressive the level of, of uh, virologic suppression. I wish I had right in front of me the, the exact number. Yeah, um, yeah, I would have to look at the paper too. I think one thing though, never to forget is that it also depends on what other mutations are there. Right? Yes. Uh, and, and so if you have a K65R and M184V, I would at least argue that the uh, M184V increases the hypersusceptibility of tenofovir may overcome some of that impact from the K65R. So it also depends on what other mutations you have because that's the interesting thing about the NRTI mutations, not just one mutation alone, but it's usually several or different ones and they impact and they can go in also in positive directions. That's correct. That is something I should have mentioned with the M184V, uh, that you do get that hyper uh, susceptibility with tenofovir, which is really nice. We have another question uh, from Nicole, and it's one that I ask myself uh, as I'm looking at the stat data, which is why not use three drug therapy and then narrow to two drug down the line? Um, is there a reason that we would choose two drug over three drug at initiation? Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent question because, I you know, in clinical practice, I think you also have to be pragmatic to a certain degree, right? I mean, if you have a lot of patients and, and uh, I mean... I just think like, why even worry about it all? If there's hepatitis B or an MY84V and you have a double take of your monotherapy and what does that all mean? And I would agree. I mean, why not just start with three drugs and then you can always simplify later. There is great data on switching patients who suppress to three TCs double take which works great. I think, you know, in clinical practice, that's probably not too much of the discussion we really have. It may be important in places where there are limited resources or there are big price differences, which, you know, is something I could imagine may drive uh, this this discussion, but let's presume in the affordability of comparable priced regimens, I, I, I think it's probably just easier to start with a three drug regimen and then start uh, later dying. And and uh, the obvious question though is what is the true difference between a three drug regimen and a two drug regimen um, with regard to the long term outcome? And I think that's still one of the things we're unsure is like twenty years of three drug regimen going to lead to some cumulative toxicity versus two-drug regimen. And no one can answer that because no one has given two-drug regimen versus three-drug regimens for 20 years. So I think there's some open questions there. But for the moment, I would say that, you know, if you just sort of don't want to worry too much about these things, why, why don't you just start with a three-drug regimen and then simplify later if you feel that you want to reduce the burden of potential long-term toxicity or feel that it's not necessary to have, you know, more in someone who's successfully hepatitis B vaccinated, uh, for example. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, in our clinic, uh, this is the same discussion we've had. We are still using and preferring a three-drug regimen. Part of it is just like Nicola says in the in the question, it makes more sense to me to have the conversation with a patient. I'm going to give you a full regimen. And then once we get your labs back, 
we could discuss narrowing if appropriate, as opposed to going the other way. We're going to start you on a regiment, but once I get your labs, we might need to expand. I think it's just as a difference in, in outlook. But I will say, and I do have uh, one fellow who is very committed to trying to, to continually ask me, if there's ever a condition where I can use less medication uh, than more, why not? And it's it's a good question. And it's something that I think will continue to navigate as some of these two drug regimens just get stronger and stronger. Um, so yeah. I can see that time. A question I had was, uh, would we see weight gain differences? But we haven't seen that comparing a dietary for a 3TC to a three-drug regimen. And again, even if I'm starting someone on three drug and they have a desire to switch the two drug, it's really only for those three to four weeks once I get the hepatitis B status and genotype back. Yeah, so the interesting thing from the stats study with regard to weight gain, if you think that TAP has an impact on weight, in this 3TC, they'll take over only regimen, there was a 4.1 kilogram weight gain. Yep. Uh, so there is really no signal that there is a less uh, weight gain. But remember that in these patient groups, there were also quite a considerable amount of patients with a low CD4 count and a high viral load. And we know that these patients have a particular return to health benefit from starting antiviral therapy, and they all gain weight regardless of what regimen you give. So that, that I don't think that's necessarily just a reflection of drug toxicity, but could just be a return to health, including more patients with advanced HIV than maybe in some of the phase three registrational trials for integrase inhibitors. But let, let me ask you one more question around the, the hepatitis B thing, because you said you had a high... Yes. percentage of hepatitis B background. And, and a lot of German colleagues were always like, well, you know, if you start someone with 3TC's little tegavir and let's say he has a chronic hepatitis B and he's been on that regimen for four weeks until you sort of switch the patient because he didn't come in again earlier. Uh, would, would that be a concern if someone were on sole 3TC therapy for four weeks and had chronic hepatitis B? Would you be worried about that? I, I, I would. I mean, I, I think that our guidelines, you know, continue to recommend two active hepatitis uh, B agents. We know that there's a higher risk for people living with HIV of developing hepatitis B resistance to lamivudine or 3TC. Honestly, though, if it was, you know, two, three weeks, a month, I mean, I think the stat study is giving me some support. That's going to be okay. Um, but my concern would be exactly what, what you just mentioned. Someone, you know, especially when things happen in New Orleans, like a hurricane coming through, we get a phone call and someone says, hey, we just restarted hey, I'm out of town. Okay, why don't we give you two more months, three more months? And, you know, it's it's rare, but it's not that rare that I have to navigate some life circumstances where I'm giving patients three to four months of medication before I get yeah. those follow-up labs. Yeah, so I, I would agree. I mean, I don't think that four weeks of 3TC month are going to lead to any kind of resistance, quite yeah. frankly. Uh, that's not what the data, but, but it can occur after at least a, a year. There is a 20% resistance Rate. So it is not like that you can extend forever. And, and you're right, it, it's the hurricanes, uh, which are increasing throughout the world, but it's also obviously the COVID pandemic, which with, you know, corresponding lockdowns and changes in curfew and I don't know what, uh, and, and travel restrictions can also have an impact on how people attend clinics. So I think that's also something in these days, which we need to consider. I could not agree more. I know we have only a few seconds left, but I was going to ask you, you're going to have a patient with end-stage renal disease, which is really interesting to me because we don't have any data yet or support um, for regimens for rapid ART. But I have now around five or six that I have on a, 
uh, a dalutegvir boosted darunavir once weekly tenofovir regimen. And I'd love uh, to hear if, if you're seeing any of those kind of conditions that we still don't have, you know, optimal recommendations for rapid ART. Yeah. So, so we, 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 you know, in the U.S., you see much more people with with advanced stages of renal impairment, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, and obviously NRTIs are, are an issue depending on you know how low your EGFR, and then you have a lot of restrictions and a lot of drugs you simply can't use. Now, yeah. if you don't have a hepatitis B, I, I think that in the future we may see a little bit more uh, second generation integrase inhibitors with NRTIs because. They can be given at any stage of renal impairment. Obviously, we're not giving NRTIs for rapid ART initiation in the lack of resistance test, but that is in combination with two nukes. And the question is, how is that going to play out in the setting of second-generation NNRTIs, which all work in the presence of the K103N and, you know, an integration with the high genetic barrier. So I think there's some interest in, in some of these newer compounds, which may play a role. But usually people with renal impairment um, are patients which don't come for rapid ART initiation. Those are mostly patients which, you know, where the renal insufficiency develops over time, at least at least in our setting, it's more like you see them for quite a while and then they suddenly have to go on dialysis or, you know, kidney yeah. transplant or whatever. So that's maybe different, yeah. So as you can see, still exciting issues around rapid ART for us to continue to discuss. This was a really great conversation. Jürgen, I so appreciate joining uh, with you and having this uh, discussion and presenting today. It was great fun. Thank you all. Thank you to Drs. Halpern and Rockstrow, and thanks to you, the listener. To listen to more episodes in this series and to see slides and webcasts on key decisions in HIV care, see the links in the show notes. Thank you and have a great day.